told, he spent nearly two months locked up. Unlike most of the other prisoners, he would actually be shackled the entire time, even while out doing physical labor. Then, one day, he was told out of the blue that he could go free. His initial captor was now gone, and the new management decided there was no point in keeping him in the guardhouse anymore. I have to wonder what went through Geronimo's brain as he stepped out into the burning sun and harsh terrain of San Carlos in July 1877. Was he already thinking about revenge? Or what his next move would be? Or maybe, just maybe, he had a sincere desire to find his family and make the best of his new situation. It didn't matter, though because larger forces were goading him headlong toward his ultimate destiny, to flee from this place called San Carlos and make a name for himself that still captivates imaginations more than a century and a half later. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 71, Breakout. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we saw how John Clum managed to consolidate every single settled Apache west of the Rio Grande at his San Carlos reservation. He also put a mighty big feather in his hat by being one of the few men who can claim to have brought in the legendary Apache renegade Geronimo. By late May 1877, Everyone was settled at their respective place at San Carlos, which for Geronimo meant the inside of a jail cell, and Clum could kick his feet up and congratulate himself on a job well done. He was 26, newly married, successful at his job, and had the respect and trust of his superiors in Washington. You can almost hear the sound of him patting himself on the back even 150 years later, But though Clump thought he had diffused the situation with the Apache, what he had actually done is stock all the gunpowder and dynamite together and ignored the long-burning fuses slowly heading in that direction. Plus, he may not have realized it at exactly this moment, but his days as the Indian agent at San Carlos were numbered. Colonel August Kautz, the military commander of Arizona, who was part of a running feud with Clum, had decided the time was right to strike. Both Clum and Governor Anson P.K. Safford had been instigators of a smear campaign against Kautz in the press for months. Kautz had taken this, but his blood boiled with each unfounded criticism. When he finally retaliated, however, his plan was a lot more subtle than simply punching back. Instead, in early April 1877, just as Clum was marching off to Ojo Caliente, Kautz wrote to his superiors in Washington asking that he be allowed to station a man at the reservation. Since the Indian agent and governor obviously thought he was not doing enough, having a man on the ground at San Carlos would make sure he would have the most up-to-date intelligence. The logic of the argument was sound enough, and the Interior Department always willing to have an extra eye to look out for the all-too-common graph among the nearly autonomous Indian agents, agreed to his request. 
This is where Kautz's subtlety comes into play. Why he really cared about having a man at San Carlos was because it would cause Clum, who had a particular hatred for army officers, to blow a gasket. And that's exactly what happened. The day after he returned from Ojo Caliente with Geronimo in chains, Clum was met by Lieutenant Lemuel Abbott and a company of soldiers who explained his new posting. In the words of historian Edwin R. Sweeney, you can almost imagine the reaction of the egotistical Clum when he heard that one of Kautz's officers was at his agency to check on his activities. So, on June 5, 1877, the agent sent off a defiant telegram to his superior saying he refused to be inspected, and if they didn't back down, he would quit. I am ready to transfer my property, he wrote. How soon can I be relieved? He would calm down some the next day, but still said, quote, It is an insult to the honor, integrity, and manhood of an agent, and I should resent it as such. End quote. This would be very dramatic if it wasn't for the fact that this wasn't the first time Clum threatened to resign. He'd actually done so twice in the last six months. My sources nearly uniformly say that the threats were pretty hollow. Whenever there was a policy or decision that he didn't like, Clum would threaten to leave his post. Convinced as he was of his own indispensability, he thought this would be enough to ensure he got his way. But now, after saying he was taking his ball and going home so many times, the big kids over in Washington finally decided it was better to just let him walk away. The removal of all Apache from Ojo Caliente had delayed his leaving some, but the blow-up over Abbott's appointment to San Carlos caused the issue to become front and center once again. But, proving that he didn't actually want to leave his very powerful post, on June 9th, Clum suggested something that can be charitably described as overly ambitious. Just days after saying he was ready to pack up and move, he agreed to magnanimously stay on as agent. However, his magnanimity came with a brash proposal. Clum wrote to Indian Commissioner Smith saying, quote, If your department will increase my salary sufficiently and equip two more companies of Indian police for me, I will volunteer to take care of all the Apaches, and the troops could be removed. End quote. Did you catch that? Not only did Clum want more money, but he was saying that he and his Apache police alone would oversee Indian affairs. The troublesome army, who he hated, could just take a hike. When news of this proposal leaked, it caused a general outcry. No one, and I mean no one besides Clum, wanted the army gone. That was just inviting disaster. Not only did everyone sleep a little better at night knowing that the army was around to stop Indian raids from starting up again, but many in Tucson relied on army contracts to continue living and operating. The Arizona Minor newspaper wrote, quote, The brass and impudence of this young bombast is perfectly ridiculous. End quote. Though Governor Safford and a few others were in his corner, in the end, officials in Washington didn't even want to consider this offer. No, Clum said he wanted to resign, so they finally let him go, effective July 1st, 1877. 
Kautz had calculated that putting a soldier at San Carlos would make Clump blow his top, but it worked even better than expected. So what are we to make of John Clum? As I mentioned before, he was brilliant, insightful, and fearless. He could go toe-to-toe with anybody, whether they be Apache chiefs or army generals. No one else could have consolidated so many disparate Apache bands at one place while also giving them a stake in how they managed their own reservation. Finally, he was honest and hardworking, something that was not common at all with Indian agents. But at the same time, he was exceedingly arrogant and convinced of his own brilliance. He could play politics with the worst of them, able to smear and outmaneuver his enemies, always twisting the knife here and there at the exact right moment. And though he could gather all the Apache under him, that doesn't mean he should have. This consolidation ignored the cultural differences and rivalries between bands, which caused no end of friction, while also removing everyone from traditional homelands, which always created a pull to leave San Carlos. Finally, he clashed with everyone who disagreed with him and could not cooperate with army officers to save his life. Speaking of, as he was on his way out the door, he also sent John Wasson, the fiery editor of Tucson's Arizona Citizen newspaper, his correspondence and an editorial where he slammed the military leadership of the territory. I personally tend to see Clum as something of an Icarus, who flew ever higher until his wings melted under the intense heat of his own ambitions. But like most political figures, you really shouldn't feel too bad for him. Following his resignation from San Carlos, he decamped for the new mining town of Florence, before eventually heading to a silver boom town in southeastern Arizona that I'm sure you've never heard of. It's called Tombstone. Quipping that every tombstone needs an epitaph, he would found the paper of that name in 1880, which continues printing to this day and is the longest continually printed newspaper in Arizona. When Tombstone incorporated in 1881, he would go on to be elected the town's first mayor, a position that would lead him into contact with a soon-to-be fast friend, Wyatt Earp, who I'm also sure you probably never heard of. Clum will show up again in our story when we get to that little 30-second scrape that Earp and his brothers had in some random side alley. For those of you who've watched the movie Tombstone, Clum is portrayed by the appropriately bald Terry O'Quinn. Clum would eventually move to Alaska and serve as a postmaster before finally heading to Los Angeles, where he would die at the age of 80 in 1932. But while Clum is riding off for bigger and better things, we have to go back to his charges at San Carlos, whom he just sort of left in the lurch. Indian inspector William Vandver stepped in to help run the agency while the replacement was sought and elevated the agency's clerk to be temporary agent. It's during this time that Vandiver made one substantial contribution to the history of Arizona. He let Geronimo go. In July 1877, he petitioned his superiors in Washington to release the 17 Apache men Clum had kept locked up since the end of May, including four who were in shackles. Feeling that they had been, quote, thoroughly subdued, pause to contemplate the irony there for a second, 
Vandenberg thought they could be useful in helping bring in any remaining renegades that were still raiding in Arizona or Mexico. Neither he nor his superiors who approved of the decision really understood how much Clum's arrest and the subsequent months of incarceration and labor had burned itself into Geronimo's psyche. For the rest of his fighting life, whenever it came down to a choice between running or the slightest possibility of going back to jail, Geronimo would always choose to run. For now, though, Geronimo would not immediately strike back. Instead, he gravitated toward the Chaconans under Nietzsche, the son of Cochise, near Old Fort Goodwin. Remember that Nietzsche was maybe around 20 at this time, and had not been groomed for leadership like his now-deceased brother Tassa had been. Inexperienced and young, he naturally relied on more seasoned warriors, like Geronimo. The two would become close, with Nietzsche often looking for counsel from Geronimo and the power he possessed. A Chiricahua man later recalled, quote, Nietzsche was a good man in some ways, but you couldn't civilize him. He liked his Indian dancing, and he liked his fighting, and he liked his drinking. He was always influenced by Geronimo, end quote. Geronimo wasn't going to be a problem, not yet, but trouble was brewing with the very man who had labeled Geronimo a quote-unquote bad Indian. Victorio, the main leader of the Chehenis who had been relocated from Ojo Caliente, and his people were getting more dissatisfied by the minute. Their assigned spot, near the modern community of Geronimo along US-70 between Bylas and Fort Thomas, was hot and miserable, with disease starting to rear its ugly head. They were also feuding with the White Mountain Apache, something common with so many bands being rounded up and thrown together. Ration supplies also continued to be a problem, with Vandiver slashing what he'd been handing out through July and August. Lieutenant Abbott, perhaps a bit unfairly, blamed Vandiver for the ration shortfalls, saying that he was negligent. Vandiver blamed contractors for not fulfilling their end of the deal. Whoever was right, it meant the Apaches weren't being allowed to have the food they were promised, and that made things dicey. During this, in August 1877, Tom Jeffords visited the reservation to renew his acquaintances with the Chaconans and Chehenes. He wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near the place had Clum still been in power, but now he could spend some time with Nietzsche, Victorio, and Geronimo for the first time since June of the previous year. And what he found alarmed him. He was quick to tell Vandiver that the Chehenis in particular were ready to bolt at any moment. He wasn't the only one feeling that a breakout was imminent, as Kaus ordered his men in nearby forts to be ready, just in case, following reports from Lieutenant Abbott at San Carlos. Abbott hoped that the arrival of the new agent, Henry Hart, with several wagons of food, would alleviate the situation. And for the moment, it did appear to work, and both Hart and Abbott were eager to overcome the rancor that had characterized Army-Indian agent relations over the past few years. However, Hart was suddenly faced with a pair of crises that would set off the next batch of Apache problems. The first involved our old friend from two weeks ago, Pionsene, he who had basically destroyed the Chiricahua Reservation over a barrel of whiskey. On September 1st, 1877, he and a few others who had refused to settle down 
rode into San Carlos under the cover night to talk about their exciting lives of rebellion and to recruit more people to come away with him down into Mexico. One day later, in what is maybe just a giant coincidence, the next major crisis came. The Chehenis broke out. Historians generally agree that the mass exodus of Chehenis had been in the works for some time, and had not been caused by Pionsene's visit, but that the latter might have served as a convenient excuse for the former. On the evening of September 6, 1877, after a little more than three months at San Carlos, the Chihenni put into motion their escape. More than 300 Apache, mainly Chihenni, but with members of other bands mixed in, began moving toward New Mexico and their traditional homeland at Ojo Caliente. Pointedly not invited to participate were 145 Badonkahi and Chaconans under leaders like Geronimo. Victorio and others considered them, especially Geronimo, to be the reason they had been removed from their beloved reservation in the first place. They would label these as bad Indians and sought to distance themselves from them. Fording the Gila River, they kept moving, with Victorio and others forming a rear guard to protect the rest from the inevitable army campaign to round them back up. Before the sun had risen, the first skirmish would occur, with more following in the coming weeks, as soldiers and Apache scouts were sent out to recapture Victorio and his people. In response, the remaining Chehenni broke up into small groups and each made their way separately. As an interesting aside, traveling with Victorio was his most able and trusted advisor, his remarkable sister, Lozen. Lozen, for lack of a better term, was basically an Amazon. Quite unusual for her culture, she had spurned any suitor and chose not to marry and bear children. She was noted for being an able warrior, a master horse thief, and possessing equal amounts of courage and wisdom. Always at Victorio's side, she was part of his war councils and his deepest confidant. Victorio would say, quote, Lozen is as my right hand, strong as a man, braver than most, and cunning in strategy. Lozen is a shield to her people, end quote. But more than that, she possessed power. Lozen was reputed to be able to heal the sick and see the future. One warrior testified that she could use her power to know an enemy's location. The Chihenni called her little sister in reverence and considered her as sacrosanct as their deity, white painted woman. Geronimo simply called her warrior woman. As Victorio and the other groups moved northeast, perhaps guided by Lozen, they eventually made contact with a group of Navajo south of Acoma in New Mexico. Here they sent feelers to nearby Fort Wingate in early October, so a month after breaking out, stating that they wished to live in peace and would settle down, but they would not go back to San Carlos. The fate of these rogue Apache was hotly discussed. The military leader at Fort Wingate feared that they might have a destabilizing influence on the Navajo and wanted them sent somewhere else. Vandenver, who happened to show up in the area around this time, threw in his two cents that it would be a really bad precedent if we just let these Apache break out of their reservation and if the government gave into their demands and let them settle at Ojo Caliente again. His suggestion? Either ship them all back to San Carlos 
or remove them permanently to the Indian Territory in Oklahoma. Both those options were incredibly insensitive, considering this was the one band of Apache who really actually wanted peace, but had been taken away from the very place where they had settled down and decided not to bother anyone. Historian Dan Thrapp summed up the situation when he says, quote, The fact was that no one had any idea what to do with the Apaches, except move them somewhere else. End quote. Then the army made one of those rare enlightened decisions for those days. They would send the Chihanis back to Ojo Caliente. Kind of, sort of. This was just a temporary situation, while their final fate would continue to be hashed out. But for Victorio and his people, it didn't matter that the army said this was only temporary. They were going home. We have snippets of speeches given by the Chiheni leaders to the army about their desire to go to and stay at Ojo Caliente instead of being forced anywhere. Victorio would say in part, quote, We want to stay at Ojo Caliente. In case we do go to Ojo Caliente, we do not want any Indians to interfere with us. We want to die there. There we have plenty of water and plenty of rain and we want to work. End quote. Another leader, Nana, would say something similar with, quote, We want to live happily and contented until there is nothing left of us from old age. We want to die from old age and disease, not from fighting and trouble. End quote. Finally, from Loco, perhaps the most staunchly pacifist of all the Chehenis we have, quote, What we want to do is plant, raise corn, vegetables, and melons so we can look on with pleasure while it is growing. End quote. Good words, all. If only the United States had listened a bit more. By November 10th, a bit over a month since coming in from Fort Wingate and two months since leaving San Carlos, the Chihenis were back at Ojo Caliente and settling in nicely. However, their situation would continue to be bandied about at the highest levels, with no one really happy they were back in New Mexico. Their ultimate fate is something we'll get into in a future episode. Back at San Carlos, Hart was doing his best to restore stability. Following the Chehenis deciding to up and leave, he considered moving all the Chiricahua closer to the agency headquarters. This move, which probably would have backfired spectacularly, was only stopped because everyone involved realized just how spectacularly it probably would have backfired. In late September... Roughly three weeks after the Chehenis had flown the coop, Hart sat down with the various leaders of bands that were still staying put. During these talks, he named none other than Geronimo as quote-unquote captain of the Badonkihis and Chaconans that Clum had moved from Ojo Caliente that spring. And the renegade actually agreed to this and pledged to stay on the reservation with Nietzsche and his Chaconans. Now, he and the people with him had stayed because the Chihenis didn't want to involve them anyhow. You may remember that Victorio had specifically pointed out Geronimo as a quote-unquote bad Indian. And Geronimo and his people absolutely meant it when they said they would stay on the reservation. Except, yeah, conditions will quickly tip the other way because that's just how U.S.-Indian relations go. So, what happened? Well, a few things. The first is the Nednies under Hua, who never came into San Carlos and continued to cut a wide swath down in Mexico. 
Between October 1876 and October 1877, they reportedly killed 39 men and wounded 21 others in just one district of Sonora, which accounts for 63% of all the Apache-related deaths in Sonora during that year. Remember that Geronimo is very close to Wa and probably following his exploits carefully. You know, just in case. The next problem was disease. I've said it before, but where Nietzsche and his Chaconans were settled was basically a black hole of malaria. Thankfully, since being moved there in 1876, they had managed to mostly avoid an epidemic, but that luck ran out in the early spring of 1878, when they began to experience what they called the shaking sickness in large numbers. By late spring 1878, roughly 50 to 60 of the 360 members of Nietzsche's band had died from malaria. Hart would cover up these numbers in reports he'd made back to his home office so they wouldn't get in their heads to slash his budget. Instead, he gave permission for the Chaconans and the White Mountain Apache to move up into the hills, where it was healthier and where they could gather more food for themselves. Which brings us to the problem with Hart himself. Think back to the start of the episode and one of the reasons that everyone liked Clum so much. Yep, it was because he was not fleecing the government to line his own pockets. Hart, not so much. While Abbott originally characterized Hart as a man with sense with whom relations could be amicable, it turned out that he, in the words of Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley, would be the most corrupt agent of them all. That might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but he certainly wasn't the least corrupt agent either. Before taking up his current gig, Hart had been involved in several mining ventures near Socorro, New Mexico with a man named Percival Stockman, who went by the colorful moniker of The Professor. Now that he was the Indian agent, Hart hired both his own brother and Stockman as agency employees. Neither did any real work for the agency, but rather spent their time building up mining interest near or even on the reservation. Hart would even give them food from the rations so they would be comfortably fed while building up these side ventures. It didn't help any that he would run into the same chronic supply issues that plagued every reservation, forcing him to put everyone on half rations. His solution to these supply issues was also to let the Apaches go gather food in the mountains, which naturally meant that he was keeping less of an eye on his charges. Of course, with all his attention focused on mining, it's not like he was keeping that great of an eye on them in the first place. Another problem was the lack of proper tools at the reservation. Over the winter of 1877-78, Hart persuaded a group of more than 100 Apache to build irrigation ditches for their crops. Unfortunately, he had no tools to give them for this job. One visitor commented that he saw three shovels among 100 workers. This was eventually rectified when the reservation was visited by General Orlando B. Wilcox in the spring of 1878, who pulled some strings to make sure Hart had access to all the farming tools he needed. Wilcox, by the way, was the new military commander for Arizona, replacing Couts in March 1878. He also, as you might have guessed, is the eponym for the town of Wilcox. The cattle community, originally called Maley, was named after him in 1889, when the general was the first person to arrive via train to town. The fact that Wilcox had to step in and arrange for supplies, which he would have to do again later that year in order to make sure the Apache would be fed, 
gives you an idea how bad things must have been for the Chiricahua. Malaria was not so slowly picking them off and food was in short supply. So they did what people have done since time immemorial to deal with their problems. They started drinking. Because Hart had such a lax hand on the tiller, Tiswin began reappearing on the reservation, after Clum had done his level best for three years to make sure San Carlos was dry as a bone. And Tiswin, turns out, leads us back to Geronimo. On August 1st, 1878, roughly a year after being released from the guardhouse, Geronimo was at what is known as a Tiswin drunk, which is exactly what it sounds like. People get together, make Tiswin, drink Tiswin, and usually wind up making some sort of drunken mistake. In this case, the mistake was Geronimo's. For some reason that we are not exactly sure of, he began to drunkenly berate his nephew. The youth had done something to upset him, and so he tore into the boy. Whatever he said, the nephew was so distraught that he did something quite rare among the Apache. He committed suicide. Geronimo was horrified by what had happened and feeling deeply ashamed. He made a rash decision. The death would point to Geronimo, which would point to his participation in a Tiswin drunk, which would mean more time in the guardhouse. And Geronimo really didn't want to spend more time in the guardhouse. So, taking his three wives and two children, he up and ran from San Carlos. Geronimo was once again on the lam from the reservation authorities. Forgive any spoilers if I say it definitely will not be the last time. And that's where I'm going to end things this week, with Geronimo on the run and things at San Carlos starting to break down yet again. This time, however, there will be no clum to fix things, and Geronimo will run straight into the waiting arms of his good friend and current scourge of Mexico, Hua. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.